Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers 4DC. Welcome to The Echo Chamber. Uh, we are joined today by Paul Holmes. Paul, welcome. Hi. Um, you're back from uh, traveling, as usual. Uh, and we're going to talk about the global PR industry. Oh, that. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's uh, an interesting time. We have we have actual data, so that always helps. It does. Um, well, it helps us. It helps us analyze the industry. It doesn't always help um, if there's you know particular conclusions we want to be making. In this case, I mean, I think the global com- communications report, the first phase of which launched a week ago. Um, seem to be simultaneously positive and negative. Well, I have, um, you know, I have, I have two or three uh, reactions, I guess, to that. The first is that this is still not a data-rich industry. And so anything that gives us an empirical basis for the opinions that you and I and people like us um, tend to spout is um, extraordinarily useful. And um, we should probably start by thanking the USC's Annenberg School and the Global Alliance for Public Relations and the Arthur Page Society Mm -hmm. and the Institute for PR and uh, all the other people who came together to um, help us gather this and analyze this data Mm -hmm. um, for the commitment they made to um, enriching the industry's data pool. Um, I think that in and of itself is a good place to start. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what this survey did was a couple of things. Um, The first is that it gave us a benchmark going forward um, for us to be able to sort of build on Um, as the global communications report becomes institutionalized. Um, And it also sent us a wake-up call because the the big conclusion that I took away um, from all of the data that came out of this was that as an industry, we continue to underestimate the pace of change and the degree to which um, we will need to revolutionize, not just evolve Mm. uh, PR agencies and the practice of PR in general. Mm. So I think the the headline findings um, released last week were that, so first of all, people predict the agency sector will reach or approach uh, $20 billion by 2020. Um, that's agency people. It should be said in-house people are considerably less bullish about growth. Um, but it raised, despite, you know, that's a fairly positive assessment, I think, um, of the next five years. But it raised several questions about um, the industry's ability to attract the right talent, adapt to new technologies and increase the level of investment required to capitalize on these opportunities. Um, why do you think there is still this, this gap, I guess, between an industry that on the one hand seems quite bullish about growth, but on the other hand doesn't seem to be investing in the kinds of things that will actually help it grow? 
I think um, I think that the, there are two answers to that. The, the first answer, um, looking at the client side of the business, is that the clients we surveyed um, were almost all from the uh, ranks of chief communications officers rather than chief marketing officers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the takeaway from that is that um, while the expectations of corporate communications departments may be rising, um, the investment in the corporate communications departments is not. Um, you know, the, the average um, CCO anticipated growth in his his or her department's budget um, over the next five years of about two percent a year. Yeah, two and, um, and a half, is, I think. Yeah, but, which, yeah. which is barely, um, you know, barely better than the rate of inflation. Mm. Uh, so the first thing to say is that companies are not putting a lot of money into in, into the uh, communications infrastructure, um, which implies pretty strongly, I think, that if agencies are going to grow, they're going to have to grow um, by taking a larger share of the marketing budget. Uh, Now, that doesn't seem to me to be an unreasonable expectation. We've discussed on this podcast in the past um, that marketing today needs to be more about engagement, more about dialogue, more about conversation, more about storytelling, more about content, and these are all areas where public relations has a great opportunity to contribute. Mm. Uh, that leads to the second sort of concern that comes out of these data um, for me, which is that the industry, the agency business is still not changing quickly enough. And while this is an interpretation rather than something that's, that, that is made clear by the data, um, it looks to me as if, um, as if a lot of firms sort of went through this period of saying, okay, social media is important now. We need to do content creation. That was a huge change. We've changed. Um, therefore, we're ready going forward. And I think that just sort of ignores the fact that the, the change continues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I said during my presentation in, in Los Angeles that um, you know, not only is the pace of change never been faster than it is right now, but it'll never be this slow again. Uh, this isn't a case of we make some changes and then we move forward as if business is restabilized. This is, okay, we've changed 10 things. What are the next 20 things we need to change? Mm. It seems like what we've seen so far is, is incremental change rather than you know, a fundamental re-evaluation by both agencies and clients of, of what's required. Um, do you think that existing agencies can actually do this? Or, or, or does, do they need to, to start from scratch? No, I think, I think there are plenty of existing agencies that not only can do this, but are doing this. Um, you know, one, of the, one of the things I think that um, is apparent for the data is that you know, we're looking at averages and there are some respondents within the sample size who are absolutely clear about the fact that you know dramatic changes have been made and will continue to be necessary 
going forward. And then there are others who are more reluctant to change or have changed more slowly. So there are firms, you know, sort of on the leading edge here who are doing this well and who have made the necessary changes and who are moving forward. Um, there are firms that are no longer looking to their peers as the primary source of new talent, for example. Mm. Um, whether there are enough of those firms is a huge question. And whether those firms, um, you know, whether those firms will set themselves apart sufficiently um, going forward is another question. Um, but I do think I do think it's it's possible, and I think it's happening. Hmm. And we looked at um, the way that business models are adapting, the way that communications departments are anticipating change, and agencies are expecting change as well. Um, and yet, you know, the critical question, as ever, revolves around talent, um, which is identified as the biggest growth challenge. Um, retaining the right talent ranks first uh, as a growth challenge. Ranking second is recruiting, recruiting the right talent. Um, and ranking third, I think, is, is lack of relevant talent. So talent really emerges as, as the biggest challenge, uh, which is not surprising, given that all of these changes require, you know, you could say they require a fundamental rethink of the kinds of skills that are employed at, at agencies and comms departments. And yet, um, of course, despite all that, uh, it seems like both clients and agencies are um, one, hiring from the, the same ponds, uh, and two, hiring for or, or valuing traditional expertise. More. I mean, I, I thought it was, it was really interesting that, that written communications is a skill ranked as most important, important by client and agency respondents ahead of uh, um, ahead of things like you know analytics and um, research, business literacy, you know content development. Yeah, um, it, it's hard not to see that as a reflection of a sort of institutional laziness. Um, I think. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are following the path of least resistance. You have a gap in your organization. Um, the easiest place to look to fill that gap is another organization like your own. Um, you don't have the headache of some new person adapting to the PR industry, figuring out what it means to work in a PR agency, learning the ropes. You know, you, you, you think you can just sort of plug and play. Um, somebody from an equivalent position in another agency. Um, that that doesn't seem to me to be a sufficient response to the kind of the kind of changes that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, um, you know, I think we all we all tend to assume that the future will be a variation on the past rather than something fundamentally different. Mm. Uh, we have been driven by print media and by earned media and by words for a long time. And I think we overestimate the extent to which that will continue to be the case in the future. Mm. Um, you know, that's not to say that we don't still need people who have those skills, mm -hmm. um, but those are not the key skills that we are missing right now. Those are not the skills that are in shortage. And um, yeah, it, it, it's worrying that people um, seem to be focused on on a, a sort of 
what what is now a, a vestigial part of our business almost. And and even the challenges that that are called out by agencies and clients are are a little worrying. I think. I mean, obviously, talent you would expect, but. Um, but they, they seem uh, relatively or, or certainly less concerned um, about competition from, from other disciplines such as marketing and advertising. Um, they're, they're, they're not particularly concerned about a shortage of quantifiable measurement techniques um, or the need for better forms of measurement. Um, you know, it, uh, uh, on the one hand there's disruption and on the other there seems to be a level of complacency. Yeah, so I suppose that one could make the argument that if we get the right people in, the right people, including people who are strong at content creation, who understand paid and shared and owned media as well as they understand earned media, um, people who understand measurement and metrics, data and analytics, you know, all the things that we talk about all the time, mm. uh, then then all of those other problems become, uh, you know, are, are essentially solved. Right. Um, right. But I'm not sure that that's what people are talking about when they say they the talent is their priority because, as you say, the skills that they're looking for are not the skills that will address those issues. Mm. And, um, you know, it, it is... It is sort of surprising to me as disciplines converge and as um, disciplines compete for, you know, the sort of MVP role on the client's roster um, that, that there is this, um, as you say, complacency um, that, um, that or, or maybe, you know, maybe it's, it's a willingness to settle for um, you know a less central role, mm. uh, maybe maybe there are a lot of people out there who just figure you know we can we've always been able to make a decent amount of money out of this business, playing a supporting role. Why should we aim for anything higher? So I'm not sure if it's complacency or lack of ambition, or lack of self confidence, which wouldn't be entirely surprising. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, as someone who's covered the industry for a while. Does that surprise you that um, perhaps the the bulk of the industry is is maybe you know happy just just uh, making making decent money doing what it's always been doing? Um. Yeah. I mean, I it again. It's um. It was interesting to hear the thoughts of the the folks that we had on our panel um, oh. at USC last week um, who were, you know, uh, alternately um, surprised by and, um, uh, and exasperated by the data we were presenting <laughs> and who clearly didn't feel that it represented, you know, their view of, of the industry and their view of where the industry was going. Mm -hmm. um, and I suspect that, you know, when you sit down and, and talk to people who really are driving change in their organizations, who are forward-thinking, um, you know, these these data from the industry as a whole are alarming. But as I said, I do think that there, you know, I do think that there are people we could debate whether there are enough of them mm -hmm. um, who, you know, who are leading 
real change um, and and who are adapting their organizations and who are moving forward. And maybe what we'll see is an industry that um, at some point um, splits in two, um, mm. you know, so that there is, in fact, that the, the, the high level um, strategic council uh, content creation, multi-channel, multimedia um integrated approach um, from some agencies and, um, you know, a much more traditional uh, one-dimensional approach from others. And who's to say that you can't make money being traditional and one-dimensional? Do you think that corporate agencies are more challenged? This is something I was thinking about because when you look at the big networks, at least, the ones that are doing well seem to be the ones that have have invested in, in consumer and digital and so on. Um, in, in in the hopes, I, I, I think of 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 getting those mythical marketing budgets. Um, yeah, look, certainly the, the the firms that are growing um, at a most healthy rate over the last um, the last few years. Um, you know, this year I I pointed Edelman, Weber, Shandwick, Golan, and Conan Wolf um, oh. as the four that stand out to me. Um, are clearly, um, you know, more invested in the consumer marketing side of the business and the corporate and public affairs side of the business, mm. whereas those firms that have, you know, essentially been standing still for the last three or four years um, are much more heavily corporate and, and public affairs. And I do think that the the data that we gathered in the Global Communications Report um, provides a, you know, a pretty major clue as mm. to why that is. It's that the, the corporate budgets are not where the growth is. Mm. This is actually a fundamental dilemma, it seems to me, for our industry. Mm. Um, we are well understood and appreciated by people whose budgets are standing still. We are insufficiently understood and underappreciated by the people whose budgets are growing. Um, and that it seems, I mean, I, I suspect it would be nice to be able to change both sides of that equation. Mm. Um, but we certainly need to make sure that we are making the case forcefully to marketing clients that we have a bigger role to play than they perhaps imagine or assume. Mm. And just talking about corporate budgets a little bit, I mean, what's your 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 view on the fact that their budgets aren't increasing is there something that they're not doing right is there something they should be doing um to to argue and and maybe lobby for 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 greater budget increases yeah i continue to believe um and again this is something that it would be nice to have more data on but i continue to believe that um a lot of corporate communications departments continue to play defense rather than offense, that they are reactive rather than proactive. And so, you know, when it when it comes time to to set budgets, um, you know, they're not making the case we need another $10 million to really get out there and tell our corporate story more effectively. Mm. Um, 
you know that they're they're spending their money on I, I, I you know I'm I'm going to overgeneralize and oversimplify here, but we're doing a lot of monitoring and a lot of listening and a lot of watching and we're putting out fires. But mm. the putting out of fires doesn't necessarily get that much more expensive from one year to the next. Yeah. In some ways, you know the the challenge of making sure that the external environment is monitored. Um, is easier and more economic today than it was. Mm. And I just think corporate communications departments are not expanding um, their role um, the way that they need to. Um, You know, I come back to storytelling and and telling the company's story, you know, inside and outside, um, Mm. proactive engagement. I, I just think far too many corporate communications departments are reactive. Part of that has always struck me, whether rightly or wrongly, as being generational. It always seems like corporate comms heads are older than chief marketing officers um, and more risk-averse uh, and maybe a little more traditional in their views as to what constitutes you know, modern communication. Um, how much of it do you think is down to the fact that the corporate comms head is often quite close to the CEO? I mean, many people see that as a source of strength, but it doesn't seem to be having a strong budgetary impact. Um, no, it doesn't. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think it's... Um, I don't think there's a correlation. I'm not sure about that. Mm. It's an interesting question. It's not one that I've given a lot of thought to. Look, mm. the generational thing is interesting. I do, I, I do think there's some truth to that, but I, but I hesitate to be, you know, sort of deterministic about it, because I think that, you know, I come across plenty of people who are older even than I am, mm. uh, who understand this stuff and advocate for it. Yeah, I, right. I, I actually sure. think it, it is more about the quality of people mm-hmm. in this, you know, not their age, but their quality. Well, that's also uh, deterministic, um, but yes. <laughs> okay. Um, but, but I think, um, you know, I, I think we need better, um, more confident, more um, assertive, mm. um, more courageous CCOs. Yeah. And... Um, and, you know, I, I don't really care whether that person is 65 or 35. Mm. Um, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't think that's the, the key factor. Um, as far as sort of the relationship with the C- CEO is concerned, um, again, I think a lot of that is protective in nature. Um, it is about making sure that, that the C- CEO, the CEO's reputation, and by extension, the company's reputation, is not harmed by um, external events. And it is not again, you know, we the the whole notion of the sort of, you know, the statesman CEO, the CEO who is a leader on um, political and social issues is just not what it was 10 or 15 years ago. Um, Maybe that's because some of the most visible of those folks, um, I'm looking at you, Lord Brown, um, turned out to have feet of clay. Yeah, but he wrote a Uh, book. Yes. 
he did. Um, you know, uh, and, and 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 those CEOs who have tended to, to take a stand, uh, you know, Howard Schultz is a, is a, is a great example, um, have attracted a fair amount of criticism, even for positions that I would say are fairly sort of middle of the road and uncontroversial and uh, and, and and slightly anodyne, honestly. But yep. you know, with the exception of Schultz and and, and Paul Pullman at Unilever. Um, there are very, very few CEOs who are, you know, out there proactively telling a story about business. Yeah, I mean, look um, at what happened to Andrew and, Nui. I think that's the cautionary right, tale, I, right? Actually, as I was saying that, I was thinking of Andrew Nui, you know, and and um, the the you know the criticism that she got for talking about social issues um, at a time when Pepsi's performance was being questioned. Um, would I think certainly discourage anybody else from taking that stand? Even today, you know, when Unilever's numbers come out, um, you'll often see in you know it's not just the Wall Street Journal, it's the FT, it's elsewhere. This sort of slightly snide, oh, while well, Unilever focuses on social responsibility, numbers decline, as if <laughs> as if it's the fact that Unilever is trying to be responsible that is somehow harming its numbers. Yeah. And I, you know. I suspect that a lot of a lot of CCOs are, are counseling are counseling their bosses to keep their heads down to um, you know try and try and avoid controversy rather than wading into it. Uh, I was talking to um, Roland Rudd yesterday morning about um, the role of British business leaders in the campaign against the the Brexit, right? Mm. And, um, you know, Roland was saying he thought a lot of people were staying quiet because they didn't want to be on the front page of the Daily Mail, right. you know, basically labeled as a sort of traitor to Britain or, you know, yeah. a, a friend of Brussels bureaucrats. Yeah. And, you know, I do think I do think that there's this feeling why, you know, why go out and, and attract trouble when you can just keep your mouth shut and get on with the business of building the business mm, sure so coming back to this whole the whole growth story i mean we're, we're going to publish by the time this podcast is up i suspect our um global top 250 agency rankings will be out um based on that of course we we estimate the size of the industry and based on 2015 we think the industry only grew five percent um which is probably the lowest rate of growth since the recession year, I think? Yes, I think that's probably true. Um, do you see a link between maybe some of the findings in the global communications report and um, a slowing rate of growth? Or do you think that's maybe looking a little too hard at, at all of this? I mean, I think that there are probably common factors um, underpinning both. Um, you know, and, and the most obvious one is just that we are not... We are not changing fast enough. We are not adopt, adapting fast enough to the new environment. We are not proving ourselves um, in new ways to the CMO in particular. Um, I, I will I will say that I was um, surprised by the numbers. Mm. Um, you know, I, I've been fairly optimistic about the industry's growth, and and in the long term, I think I, I remain fairly optimistic. Um, but we saw some regression this year. Yeah. Um, and the most troubling aspect of it 
um, the the thing that I'm I'm really not sure how to how to make sense of mm. is um, the decline in revenue per head. Yeah. Uh, so across the global industry, yeah, um, that's quite troubling. Yeah, although, I mean, it is troubling, but we also have to bear in mind that we have better data now than we had, say, two or three years ago. So it may be that this is actually a more accurate figure than the figure we had three years ago, just because we have more headcount numbers, more firms, yeah. more, you know, just more data. Yes, and um, and I think we've, um, you know, we've... we've uh, been able to revise some numbers mm-hmm. that maybe being how to put this politely extrapolated from slightly exaggerated data five or ten years ago yeah uh, have have sort of been revised to be a little more in line with reality and that may be a factor in it but yeah. uh, I mean and the other thing to note s- uh, several firms haven't reported numbers this year um, and some of them we've estimated but but um, you know, when we when we estimate, we tend to be conservative. Now, some of those firms may just have decided not to submit numbers. The most common reason a firm decides not to submit numbers is because it does not want its numbers public. And of course, that's typically, typically because it hasn't had a very good year. So it could be that the growth is actually lower than 5%. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I you know, as you say, I think my, my, um, default assumption when we don't get numbers is that it's usually because those numbers are unimpressive or worse. Um, mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I, it is possible, of course, that, that our numbers are more bullish than the reality. Yeah, it's, there's also rampant consolidation. I mean, that, it just fascinates me, the number of, of firms that just disappear from the ranking every year because they've been bought or they merged. I mean... Yes, but uh, you know, uh, in in most of those cases, they those those numbers show up somewhere else on the rankings. In right. other words, if you're bought by Interpublic, um, you probably show up in the Weber, Shandwick, or Golan numbers. Right. Yes, but as um, you have so, have said before, firms rarely f- grow at the same pace once they've been acquired or merged. Or, or, no, no, that, that's so with. Um, with the exceptions of those firms that continue to operate very autonomously within what I would guess I'd call mid-size holding companies, mm. um, you know, M Booth is a is a great example of this. Mm. It, it is it's actually very difficult to keep that kind of momentum going. Yeah, um, the big four holding groups um, essentially flat. I think. Uh, no surprises there. I mean, we get the quarterly results, so we know that. Well, aside from Weber and Goldman, we, we, I was going to say we should we should make it clear that Interpublic these yeah. days is a pretty stark exception to that yeah. rule. Um, but certainly, um, you know, certainly Omnicom, WPP, and and through the the sort of first six to nine months of last year, Publicis um, were. Um, were not growing appreciably. Yeah, and independent firms have now outstripped the big four uh, publicly held uh, holding group PR operations for the first time, I think. So independent in firms terms are worth... Sorry? In terms of market share? Uh, well, in terms of absolute revenue. Um, yeah. Uh, so independent firms we have at about $5 billion 
of the ones that submitted anyway. Um, and the big four, I think, is something like 4.7 billion. They're PR firms. So that's the first time. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that doesn't surprise me um, because I have been, um, I've been suggesting for a long time that those big agencies that are relying on consolidation as the wave of the future and uh, a driver of performance are um, deluding themselves. I still believe that to be the case. I think the opposite is true, that we are seeing um, greater fragmentation, not greater consolidation. And, yeah. um, you know, the, the numbers for the last few years have borne that out. Mm. Well, let's hope it's just a blip <laughs> rather than a sign of things to come. Um, well... Yeah. I'd like to think that you know both the both the growth numbers and um, the data compared uh, included in the um, in the global communications report uh, together might serve as a wake up call mm. uh, because you know I, I I think it's dangerous to assume that either mission has been accomplished or that you know change um, is is incremental or any of those things. I do think we need to, you know, it's it, it, it would be much better to overestimate the challenge than underestimate the challenge at this point. Mm. It's also worth noting when we talk about publicly held firms, if you look at all publicly owned firms, they're actually doing, um, they, they grew at around the same rate as independent firms. Um, but that's when you're, you take into account many of those mid-sized firms you mentioned um, Firms owned by MDC Partners, for example, uh, all seem to be doing very well. Um, listed firms like Blue Focus and so on. So public ownership on its own doesn't seem to necessarily be a barrier to growth. No, I think um, yeah, I think MDC and Next, Next 15 as uh, mm, exactly. you know, yep. the most obvious examples mm -hmm. um, are doing quite well. Um, but I would point out that most of the PR firms contained in those portfolios mm. are either being run by the original entrepreneur yeah. or remain extremely entrepreneurial in culture. Um, and I think, yeah, I've been talking a lot recently about, about the need for, uh, for sort of agencies to learn how to improvise. Um, I, you know, I think it's, it's incredibly difficult these days to, um, to to have a strategy that will survive more than three or four months into the future because coming back to the pace of change, the pace of change is faster than it's ever been. Uh, conditions change, client needs change, and the ability to adapt um, on the fly is incredibly important. And I think it's easier to do that in a firm of 100 people than it is in a firm of 4,000 people, mm. uh, you know, and, and and that sort of lack of bureaucracy um, is is a big competitive advantage. Yeah, sure. Okay, so that's um, growth and data. Now, I just wanted to get your views on a couple of quick hits, um, <clears throat> if you would be so kind. So first of all, Panama Papers. Um, uh, uh, Big story, obviously. Um, the tax arrangements of wealthy individuals um, and of companies uh, being leaked. Uh, none of them have done anything illegal, uh, as far as I can I can see. I don't think there's any suggestion of illegality here. And yet, 
um, a fairly significant reputation challenge, would you say, for for some of the companies that are involved in this? I mean, we've seen you know Starbucks and and other companies um, face tax as a as a kind of recurring issue. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think. You know, I mean, I, th I think so. you're, you're seeing right now in the two markets that I'm most familiar with, which is to say the U.S. Um, with Donald Trump and, and Bernie Sanders mm. and the U.K. Um, with the campaign um, to leave the EU. Brexit. Um, yeah, uh, a, a, a sort of a, a moment of extreme populism. Mm. Um extreme dissatisfaction with um, the establishment, with authority. Um, you know, again, sitting at, sitting at breakfast the other day talking about the IMF uh, and, and all of these various sort of international bodies have come out with data showing it would be a bad idea for the U.S to leave um, the EU. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality is that those, those sources, which might have been the ultimate arbiters of what was right and what was wrong a few years ago, uh, just don't have the level of public confidence today that they did. And, and in fact, you know, the fact that the IMF thinks it's a good idea may, in fact, be entirely counterproductive. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, I, I I just think I just think we're seeing a, a, a major crisis of confidence in institutions, um, a, a feeling that there is a sort of inherent um, corruption um, in, in 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 sort of among the rich and powerful, yeah. um, and this just contributes to that. Um, and I think that you know the common reaction to the to the idea that these people did nothing wrong. Um, is the same as the common reaction, or, or that they did nothing illegal, excuse me, mm -hmm. is the same as the common reaction um, to, the, to the idea that, you know, the folks on Wall Street did nothing illegal um, during the, the lead-up to the financial crash, mm. um, which is that, you know, the, re the only reason that there was nothing illegal about it is because most of the laws are written by rich people, mm -hmm. and they're written by rich people for rich people. Mm. Um, but... You know, if 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 they'd been caught cheating on the welfare or benefits, they'd all be going to jail because they were got caught, caught de cheating on taxes and uh, and and sort of high finance. They're just patted on the back and given a slightly bigger executive compensation package. Yeah, this it's almost like there's something impressive about being able to outwit outwit the system at that end of the scale. Uh, well, and that's on on the in, in, in uh, with amounts of that magnitude. I yeah. think is what's impressive, mm. I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, I I just think I just think it fuels the cynicism and mistrust that we are seeing manifest itself um, across the world. And uh, you know, if it ends up with uh, President Trump sitting with his finger an inch away from the magic button. Um, we will have reaped what we sowed. Well, yes, let's hope it doesn't come to that. Thank you um, very much, Paul. Uh, it's been great having you on, as always. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. I think we're going to do a podcast um, with Arthi uh, in New York, I think. Um, oh, great. We'll, we'll talk about our North American agencies of the year, which will all be revealed by then. Um, yep. 
We do, of course, have our Sabre Awards on May the 3rd. Global Communications Report data is, is being released all the time on our website. Um, and of course, we have our Into Summit and EMEA Sabre Awards in Berlin on 25th May. Busy so, time. Yeah, it always is this time of the year. So thank you. And we'll be back all soon. Right. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Marketeers 4DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. 